Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linford, and I'm here today with an investor and chairman, the one and only Roger Flynn. Now, Roger has had an illustrious career in the corporate world, but also as a portfolio chairman and an investor across multiple sectors. So, Roger, welcome. It's lovely to see you. Yeah, well, good morning. Lovely to see you on a bright, sunny day we've got. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We were comparing weather, weren't we, before we started pressing record. <laughs> we're very British in that sense, of course. <laughs> the weather. Yeah, exactly. So, Roger, I mean, you've had such a fabulous career. And uh, what I love about your background is that you span both those worlds, really, of corporate and more entrepreneurial stroke portfolios. So we're going to have a really good discussion around kind of your career and, and what you've done in life and where you are today. So lots of people will know you um, from the businesses that you've run. But for those that maybe haven't come across you, would you mind just sort of giving us a quick canter through your background, your life, where life started and kind of where you are today? And then we're going to have a nice old chat from there. Yeah, wonderful. Um, yeah, so let, let me just wind it right back. So I, I grew up in a seaside town in Devon called Sidmouth, um, beautiful part of the world. Life on the beach um, was fabulous. And... Um, one of four siblings, I'm the second oldest, um, and parents gave us a, a lovely upbringing. Um, we didn't go on holiday much. Um, we used to go to London to see my uncle and uh, went to the local grammar school. Um, and I always wanted to go to London. We went to see my uncle in London, as I said, and um, I just found the energy, the buzz, the excitement, just such a world away from uh, my world down by the seaside in Devon. And, and it was just very, very exciting. So I decided I wanted to go to university in London. Um, I went to Imperial College to do physics and thoroughly enjoyed myself. Uh, met my wife there. Um, she wasn't at Imperial. The, um, I, my only major mistake choosing Imperial was that the male to female ratio was 10 to 1. Um, so there were hardly any girls at the uh, Imperial. So uh, Lisa was at the French Institute um, and I met her in my second year. Uh, we got engaged at, in my third year, which is very unusual, uh, and married a few years afterwards. And we're, we've been together for a 35 years now. So, wow. yeah, so uh, we have two daughters, um, Katie and Lucy, um, who are both in travel. And um, yeah, so going to Imperial was about going to London and enjoying the buzz and energy. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, made a decision in my third year that I wanted to get into business. Didn't know much about business. Um, my father was a painter and decorator um, down in Devon. Mum was at home. And so I knew nothing about business at all. So I joined a, an accountancy firm called Arthur Anderson um, to train to be an accountant, which I really didn't enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Managed to get through the exams just, um, and that was painful, working and doing exams at the same time, a nightmare. Um, and thought I didn't, want to be, I didn't want to be in finance, I wanted to be in business. And so I casted around for an opportunity and I waited for the right one to come along. Um, I put, put in with some agents and they kept saying, well, you could do this financial controller job and I just didn't want to do that. I said I wanted a hands-on MBA and they said, well, it doesn't really exist. So I waited, um, and I think that not jumping at the first thing is kind of important. And would you believe it, but then an opportunity came to work at Virgin, where I spent the first two and a half years working directly for Richard on new ideas and deals. So whatever is coming off the top of his head or whoever he's bumped into, you're working on. And it was amazing. It was exhilarating, it was exciting, it was exhausting. 24 seven, that man never stopped. 
<laughs> uh, I thought I had a lot of energy, but wow, he has a lot of energy. And if you ever meet his mum, Eve, um, uh, bless her soul these days, but um, she, you can see where he gets it from. She was an absolute firecracker. She was amazing. Um, so I spent seven years at Virgin working um, for Richard for two and a half years and then into the media group. So they used to bring you in, train you up a bit, make sure you were, you could, you know, uh, sort of be like them and, uh, and then put you into one of the divisions. So I, I was in the media group, launched Virgin Radio. Uh, we had a games business. We had publishing businesses, post-production businesses. It was all very exciting. And, you know, the idea, start businesses, buy businesses, grow them fast sell them, move on and do another one. Um, and then I got headhunted by British Airways um, to be in a big global sales role, sales and distribution role, general manager, world sales and distribution. And from a career point of view, I kind of, through Virgin, I kind of decided I want to be MD of something big. Mm. I never described big, just so I always have a get out, but uh, just a big, yeah. <laughs> um, and this BA thing came along and it, it taught, I wanted to learn about leadership at scale. I wanted to learn about sales and marketing and it did it for me. Um, unfortunately, Richard was suing them in the New York courts for a billion dollars at the time. So going to his house in Hollow Park to resign was probably the hardest thing I've done in my life. I had so much respect for that man. I was, I was just gutted to tell him that I was leaving. Um, actually, I do remember him saying, and when I told him I was leaving, he said, I knew it'd be bad news like that. And I thought, no, that's the good news. You wait till I tell you where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. He, he kind of understood in the end. I mean, he kind of understood I was doing it for career reasons. And, and we still communicate these days. But, um, yeah, I, I, felt, I felt sad to do that. But it was, it was just a great opportunity. Um, and then after four years at BA, an MD role came up at the Prudential, which is a man from the Pru, um, a two, two billion pound business, 7,000 staff. Um, I am in my mid thirties and I thought, well, here's an opportunity. So I dived into that. Um, didn't enjoy life insurance and pensions and that world and kind of figured out actually my real passions are media and travel and technology. I launched mm -hmm. BA.com at BA, etc. So then sort of went with my passions then and things I just really enjoyed doing. Um, landed a job at the BBC, which was working for Greg Dyke. Could I take the back office service functions of the BBC, about four and a half thousand people, and put them into companies and turn them into revenue generating businesses that had value um, with a view ultimately would sell them off. Um, and that was very exciting. Came out the back of that, got into a uh, private equity back management buyout of a media business called SDI Media. Um, and we bought it for $50 million, sold it four and a half years later for $250 million. Um, and it was Warburg Pinkers in New York. They were very, very happy. We were all very happy. Um, and then the crash happened. And uh, it was fine. We kind of held our own in the business. But um, after a sort of couple of years of that, um, you know, we, uh, we all left the business because they, the new purchase of the business <clears throat> kind of wouldn't incentivize us to, uh, to take it forward. So we all, all four of us left as execs. And I then had this thought about, do I go chairman investor or do I do another big job? Um, spent a year trying to buy Pinewood Studios. Wow. Which is fascinating. I raised 150 million. I couldn't persuade the board to sell it to me. Um, and then got introduced to two guys who'd started a tech business, uh, a, a travel business called Travel Match, which is the precursor to Love Holidays. And they were looking for a chairman. And I thought, well, maybe that's it. And that kind of kicked it off in 2011. <clears throat> um, and I just really, really enjoyed working with entrepreneurial people, um, giving advice, guidance, investing, helping it to accelerate and grow, um, and going on journeys with, you know, going on journeys and supporting them. Um, so that kind of did it for me. We'll probably talk about this later, but transitioning from chair, uh, CEO to chairman is really not easy. <laughs> mm. Anyone thinks they're ready for it, they're not. It's, it's a hard journey. It's a whole new skill set. Um, 
but I, you know, after 18 months, I was really thoroughly enjoying it. And, um, and then stopped looking over my shoulder, thinking I wanted to do another CEO job. And so for the last 10 years, I've been investing and chairing and growing and selling and working with private equity and working with founders and entrepreneurs. And it feels almost like having learned everything I learned about businesses at scale, um, you know, how do you accelerate businesses and get them to scale? But then when you get to scale, what are all the pitfalls of running a large company? Um, bringing all that experience to bear. Um, but it felt a bit like going back to Virgin, <clears throat> where it's high energy, it's, it's high octane, it's 24-7, it's all on, and it's all on the line kind of thing. Um, and I find that very exciting. Um, so I'm thoroughly enjoying myself <clears throat> um, these days with, with what I do now. Wow, my God, Roger, talk about dropping some amazing brand names in there in big numbers. I mean, you have had an absolutely incredible career, but also you're very um you're very humble with it, you know, and I guess that probably comes from, you know, your sort of family values growing up as, you know, one of four, you know, your dad, a painter and decorator and, and sort of the, you know, the, the upbringing that you had. Would you say that has kept you grounded? Because it's very easy to lose your head when you're in these big roles and you have the title and the salary and the car and all of the bells and whistles that come with it. But how do you stay grounded? Does that come from sort of family and, and core values, do you think? It totally comes from that. I think I one of the things that really surprised me when I got to London was I kept meeting people who weren't who they were. They were trying to be someone else, though, because that aided their career or whatever it, what the driver was. But you, you can sense when somebody's not their true self mm. in an instant. And, and it just came from, you know, not just my parents, um, but actually down in Devon, um, people are just who they are. And you don't really meet a lot of people with um, false cloaks on, if you like. Um, also, my wife, Lisa, has um, kept me very grounded over the years. So she's, uh, she's been a, a constant there to remind me not to get above myself. Um, and... You know, I've got enough trouble just being me, let alone trying to pretend to be somebody else. I mean, it's, uh, you know, but, but I think that, and, and I think that inner set of values, um, you know, particularly came from my mum, who was, you know, very um, strong-willed but grounded person. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if you hold on to that stuff, that, that, that can see you through a lot of ups and downs. If you start trying to be something different, you're, you're going to trip over at some point. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, lots of saying, be yourself, everyone else is taken. <laughs> you know, and I think that's true, isn't it? But I guess, I guess also, you know, when you, you, you talked very fondly about working with Richard Branson and, and of course, you know, with all of his incredible success and, and everything that, that he's achieved, um, he is very much himself, isn't he? Well, he seems to anyway kind of come across warts and all. Um, was that the case when you were working with him? Was he sort of very authentic and he was a good role model there for, you know, for you as well, do you think? Yes, I, th I think what I found fascinating about, about the journey, and Richard is, um, you know, what you see is what you get. Um, and he's incredibly astute, um, very, very commercial incredibly capable at negotiating um is you just learn a lot from that and in my journey I, i've met you know i've had lots of uh role models to learn from and some have been amazing like that and some have been absolutely dreadful um and you but the learning comes out of both and you look at someone you think well i really wouldn't want to do that if i was a leader um and so you're drawing all the time um and i still have this today so for me you know, career and, uh, and work has been about a lifelong learning process and never shut my mind to, off to learning. I think the exciting thing about Virgin was my learning curve kind of started almost, almost vertical because <laughs> they will just throw you in the deep end. And, and then, you know, when you get into larger businesses, then, you know, there's a lot to learn from everybody around you, good, bad, and indifferent. And so, yeah, it was, yeah, it would just be, um, all, my, all the time, and I still do it today, I think I'm still watching, listening, learning, interested all the time. And it's amazing for you to learn something from you just didn't expect it, if your mind's yeah. open to it. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, personal development is so important, isn't it? Whether you call it that and label it or, or actually if you just, you know, accept that every day is a school day, you know, and, and we're all a work in progress till the day we die. And, you know, I yeah. think that's it. That's definitely an ethos that I, I live and breathe 100%. And, and what I wanted to just touch on was a couple of things you were saying about sort of the early years as well, you know, because you you started off, you went to Imperial, you were very clear you wanted to go to London and, and you know, you, you kind of followed that and made it happen. But you started with a physics degree and then you've ended up where you are now. So for, for a lot of people, think, bloody hell, you know, how do you end, start there and end up where you are? But I guess that the point is that there isn't always a direct path, is there? There's not, you know, your career, your business life and, and personal life isn't always, a, a, you know, a point to point A to B. There can be lots of twists and turns along the way. And actually sort of discovering that and letting it evolve is, is important to not sort of force it too much and feel like you absolutely have to know exactly what you want to do. You know, because you didn't, did you? You kind of, it sort of evolved for you from what you described. Mm. I think... I just at each time I did what I thought I was really interested in. Yeah. Um, and the only real career plan I ever had was um, I had a cricketing analogy. I'm terrible at cricket, but um, the I used to play in a street cricket match in London um, on a proper pitch, but at our street versus the next street. And I think I was wicketkeeper on the basis I was the only one that could bend down for long periods of time. Um, <laughs> but is you know, my only career plan was um, wanted to be at the front. I wanted to be out batting, not sort of keeping score in the clubhouse, i.e. doing sort of finance stuff. Um, uh, so I wanted to be very commercial and, and run something. And I wanted to be MD of something big. And it was kind of, that was it. If there was a career plan, that was the, that's the extent of the plan. But what am I fascinated in? What am I interested in? Because I think the more you're interested in something, the more you're going to find it exciting and, and fun and and you'll do well at it so doing physics i was i was really interested in physics so i just did that because it was an uh, it, was, it was fascinating um and that's really guided the the crossroads you get to in your career choices when something comes up and you think well do i go right do i go left you know, mm -hmm. do i stay at virgin do i join british airways um and those moments you you choose and i think if you choose because you believe it's the right thing to do or because your parents told you it's the right thing to do um, is usually a mistake. Um, it's got to come from in here. You've got to really, you know, find it fascinating. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and every day I just wake up doing something I really enjoy doing. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Actually, follow your passions. I mean, how many people? Probably about eight. I don't know, seventy, eighty percent of people probably hate their job, hate what they're doing, don't enjoy it, dread getting up for work. You know that Sunday night feeling before a Monday morning. And actually, life is too short. So if you can find something that you're genuinely passionate about and you enjoy, you're right. You're going to excel at it and bring your best version of you to to the role. And, and that's clearly what you've done throughout your your career. Um, let me just talk about a little bit around the the kind of, I suppose that. The, the culture of the businesses that you've been in, because obviously when you joined BA, um, BA was a very different beast then to, to probably what it is now. Um, and the same with the BBC to a certain degree as well, I guess quite sort of, you know, British, relatively institutionalized organizations back back in the day, which have transformed now. So how did the culture shift for you um, play out from being at Virgin, where it's very entrepreneurial, very fast paced, very creative, you know, almost uh, an approach to failure um, in, in a way of sort of seeing that as, you know, just give it a go kind of approach to being in those organisations of the BBC and BA, which I would imagine much more autocratic, much more stiff, um, not so um, embracing of change and, and what have you. So can we talk about the cultural shift? Because I think that's an interesting dynamic that you would have had to navigate, Roger. Yeah, it's um, that's one of the lifelong learnings. I did have a headhunter who said to me once, are you getting more institutionalised as you get older? Which is a bit of a worrying, worrying question. Um, but I, um, I had no understanding of culture when I left Virgin and joined BA. And in fact, if I had, um, I may not have done it because I didn't realize the risk I was taking in leaving uh, you know, one culture and going to one that was almost diametrically opposed. 
um, you know, massive organization and, uh, and just a long history of, you know, the way they do things and the rules and all of that. And it was such an anathema to me. I could easily have sort of bounced off of the culture and been completely ineffective and not know how to get things done. Um, and so that could have been career wise, that could have been a disaster. It could have been like six months and I'm gone. Mm. Um, and I remember my first week at BA, I was invited into this credit card meeting, you know, um, airlines, you spend a lot of money on credit cards. Um, it's about 90 million in my budget, I think. So I got into this meeting, about 25 people around the table. It's booked for an hour. And after 15 minutes, I'm really bored. <laughs> and I stood up <laughs> and I said, um, I've got to go do something else. Thanks for inviting me. Please don't invite me to any more. <laughs> and there was this lovely look of horror on everyone's face. And they said, but you're supposed to be chairing it. And I went, well, <laughs> God, is this what life is like? Um, <laughs> big meetings, lots of people and nothing ever got done kind of thing. So, but I think, you know, you can, I managed to learn how to be effective in those organizations with a combination of working out how to get things done, but then also changing the rules at the same time. Mm. I, was, I was brought in to transform distribution in, in, in BA. Um, you know, it cost us 20%. You, as a lot of travel agents will remember this potentially if they're old enough, but it used to cost us 20% of, of the value of a ticket to get the customer's a ticket into their hands, standard commission, incentive commission and all of that. Uh, and our six billion of, of commercial of customer revenue, that was 1.2 billion. And my job was to blow a hole in that and make a big change in that. Um, so that was a fascinating challenge. Um, can't believe they offered it me the job, but we, we managed to get it done. Um, and then of course you're right, the, the culture at BBC was very governmenty. Mm. Um, and um very long-term thinking and 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 very different to get. Um there were some amazing people at the BBC. Um it was one of the highlights of my my life interacting with um well Greg Dyke was my boss, but people like um Mark Thompson, um Caroline Thompson, who happened to have a similar name, Jaina Bennett, um, who was running um, TV, um, sadly passed away recently. Um, and Carolyn Fairburn, who ended up being uh, Director General of the CBI. And actually, it was one of the first times I've been on a board with a real balance of men and women on the executive committee of the BBC. And I, I, I witnessed the power of balance, um, balanced decision-making, uh, various viewpoints, that kind of thing. And I think if you surround yourself by people like you um, in whatever team you're in or whatever board you're on or whatever, you're not going to make the best decisions. And I saw that very much there. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's such an important point you make, actually, Roger, because, you know, diversity and inclusion, it's, uh, you know, it's it's obviously very high on, on most organisations now, thankfully. Um, mm. Sometimes I think, we're, we, you know, are we still talking about this? You know, in particular, like gender, gender diversity. And if you say, you know, surely the case has been made, you know, by now we shouldn't even still be talking about it, but we are. But it is absolutely right because... You know, having a diverse thought um, and backgrounds and knowledge and experience represents your customer base, doesn't it? You know, if it's, if it's a room full of, you know, white, male, pale, stale, um, you know, with no diversity of culture, gender or whatever, well, that's not representative of your customers, is it? You know, so I think you're absolutely right. The power of having a diverse group and and, and I guess also as a leader, you know, having witnessed that, did that influence kind of how you built your teams going forward? You know, did it change your approach or, or was that something that had always been important to you anyway? Um, it was something I'd never really thought about. I went to a, um, uh, a grammar school that was mixed. Um, you know, all my schooling was mixed. Um, and, and actually at Virgin, it was whoever was great for the job would get it. So there were... It was very meritocratic, I can't say that, a lot of meritocracy. And, um, and so, yeah, it was just part of me. I never really judged anyone on what they were, you know, how they were, you know, what they were in that regard. Um, you know, are you the best person for the job? That's great. Um, I do think we get, we get it on diversity. I think there's still a long way to go. Yeah. To get to, get to balance, a long way to go. 
yeah it's coming, but it's slow yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually interviewed a lady called Lindsay Garvey-Jones, who you may have you may have heard of, Roger. She's been in the travel industry for a very long time, and she's running a campaign at the moment. It is within travel, but this is relevant for all industries around, around the menopause um, and you know, the impact that, that that has in, you know, in terms of the working environment, productivity, you know, just sort of actually rate it's almost like the last frontier, you know, in terms of in terms of some of this DNI stuff. And then so thankfully, we're in a very different place with a lot of this than, than we were you know, certainly in my early career. I mean, I remember, you know, sort of feeling that I had to be, be more like a man to get on in the corporate world. Now, of course, that's nonsense. You know, it, it really is. But when I was my younger self, I, I could definitely see me acting more alpha female, shall we say, than, than was probably my true self, because that was how it was. And, you know, thankfully, the world's moved on. So, um no, that's, that's it's a very, very good point. And can we just talk, Roger, about sort of the shift that you made out of corporate into portfolio, chairman, investor, mm. sort of where you are now? Because that's a big, bold move. Um, you know, the podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant, and arguably to walk away from everything you've known and the huge success you've had for what's next uh, it does take guts. It does take courage to do that. And um, so what, what was, was there a catalyst or was it just a natural evolution because of circumstances, do you think? Or did you sit down and go, actually, what do I want from this next phase of my life? How, how did it play out for you? Um, I think it was so following the sale of SDI Media, um, you know, I was thinking I wanted to do a, yeah, another CEO role. Uh, I mentioned I had a go at trying to buy Pinewood Studios. But at the time, I was I was looking at portfolio life and thinking, rather than if playing in one business, if I could play in a number of businesses um, and get that entrepreneurial buzz again, um, I think I quite enjoy that. Um, but it was I was very much on the fence, and I spent that time I was looking at pine, looking at Pinewood. I was also talking to headhunters on. And they can tell when you're not serious, when they, you, you've not given up on being a CEO. And it's very hard to switch to being chairman when you still want to be CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, I got this opportunity with what became Love Holidays. And that was probably the best thing for me. It took me about 18 months to kind of relax into the role and actually fully understand what, what the chair role is or an NED role is, as opposed to being a CEO. I was very fortunate in that Alex Francis, who was the CEO and founder of, of Love Holidays, was a very strong individual. And if he found me in the front of the car, he'd uh, open the door and throw me in the back and say, there, there's the map. <laughs> You're in the back. So he, he helped my transition, if you like, from, um, uh, from executive to non-executive. But it's not easy. You, um, and I, th- I see a lot of people flop between the two. Um, and I, I thought at the beginning, well, you know, I know how to be a CEO. Uh, I've worked with lots of chairs. I've worked on boards. I know how it operates. How hard can that be? And then you realize that when you get into it, it is actually a completely different skill set. Um, so much is different about it. Um, you listen more, you talk less and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you're looking over the horizon and, and, uh, and so on but it uh once you've made that jump and you've moved across it's incredibly rewarding um you know i'm, I'm as excited now doing what i do as i was when i was you know full-time ceo running around with my hair on fire um you know sort of putting out um daily mishaps or whatever <laughs> yeah. so yeah but it but it, that transition's not easy and it, i see the same thing that happens when People come out of large corporates and they want to start a business. They want to be entrepreneurial. Is they suddenly find that all the trappings of the large company and you've got, you know, they can't roll their sleeves up enough. Mm. Um, they they've got a lifestyle that doesn't mean that you know they they want to work on a Sunday. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to make something happen like that, particularly if you're going to start a business. It is all consuming because it's it's really hard. And I think I see a number of people come jump into entrepreneurial life and then go, oh no, that's a bit hard, and, and go back to corporate life. 
Yeah. And I've seen other people make the transition, and I think that is fascinating when people manage to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and you know, I think you're right. Neither is better or worse. It's, it's just different, isn't it? And I think recognising those differences and what it takes to enjoy it and also be successful, you know, because entrepreneurial life, it isn't for everyone. And, and corporate life isn't for everyone. And, and that's absolutely fine. And as you say, people that have bridged both and done both, it's really quite a nice combination to have. You know, I mean, I, I've sort of similar to you in that I've had the corporate career, but now I'm really enjoying, you know, the variety of, of what I've got with the portfolio that I have. And, and you know, but it, it is an adjustment. You're absolutely right. But Roger, can you just describe very simply for anyone that's listening, <laughs> what are the main differences between a CEO, a chair and a non-exec? I know this sounds like very obvious, but I think a lot of people don't really know and probably don't want to admit that they don't know and understand it. Yeah, no, no, don't worry. I spent the first 18 months not really understanding it either. Um, so obviously, you know, the CEO role, you, you're the one running the thing. You're in charge of the strategy and making it happen and, and hiring the team to do it. Um, the chairman, I think, has a number of roles. So they, it's about, is the strategy the right strategy? holding the management to account for them to deliver it, um, supporting them and guiding them and using your experience to do that, um, pointing out where you think it's going wrong and asking some difficult, challenging questions, and, um, and then managing the board um, and the investors. Um, so in my case, private investors and private equity I don't do public company stuff. I definitely decided not to do that. Um, and making sure that they're getting what they need, that the business is doing um, what they want to get out of it. Um, but also managing the debate around the board table. And so you've got to have a lot of good people skills. You've got to really understand where everybody's coming from, what their particular nuances are, um, and how to make sure the debate doesn't just descend into um, chat um, arguments or whatever that, that is very because you know when you get into a board meeting you don't actually have that long so you've really got to orchestrate it well you've got to manage it well in order to get the best out of it so I'm I'm constantly thinking of things like what are the voices around the table who's contributing who's not how effective are we how good is the information that we're getting. Um, how good are the decisions that we're making? Those are the kind of things that, that, that occupy my mind when I think of us in that moment and then all the interactions outside of it. And then a non-exec is, um, is there. And a, a lot of non-execs have specific skills they bring to the table, um, but they're not orchestrating. They're, they're, they're more supporting. Um, and it, you know, it is for various reasons. So... You know, they might have deep industry knowledge or sector expertise or um, relationships and network or or regulatory capability or whatever it is. So, so you usually bring them on as a um, as an additional support. And the bigger you get, the more non-execs you seem to have. Um, you know, what I do now, there's usually one other non-exec and private equity people around the board table and the management team. So we don't really have a sort of four or five non-execs you get in PLC world. Mm, mm. No, that's really helpful. Massively, massively helpful, Roger. And you're right. I mean, you're very much sort of, I suppose, observing, guiding, orchestrating, um, as opposed to doing the do, um, clearly. But I think the distinction between chairman and non-exec is probably where people get more confused, actually. Mm. And so I think how you've described that is fantastic. So from your point of view, Roger, I mean, you obviously, you, you invest in a lot of businesses yourself, personally. You also chair a number of businesses. Um, what, what makes a good investment for you? When you're looking at an investment opportunity, what are the, what are the core things that, that you bear in mind to decide whether to invest or not invest? What are the key things? Um, I think there's three. Um, one is the market. <clears throat> is the business in a market that has real positive characteristics it's um what i call is it got a is it got tailwinds rather than headwinds because if the market is is rising and flying and there's opportunities to to really do something different uh, then the business has a great opportunity to shine if, you, if it's headwinds all the time 
and, and problems. Nobody saw COVID coming, but you know, it's um, uh, then you've got a, a much better chance of success. Um, second would be, and uh, these aren't necessarily in the order of importance. Second would be the business itself and the opportunity in front of it, the vision that's for the business or how it could pivot to something really quite fascinating that could be fast growing and disruptive or do something different. So what, what is his opportunity? What's his vision? What's his point of difference? Why is it going to be successful? And then lastly is, is management. Um, you know, they're, uh, are they good? Um, is the bench strength good? as I call it, do they have, does each individual leader have enough gears, as I call it, to go as the business scales, can they gear, gear up with it? Mm. Or are they going to fall short? Um, because those are opportunities for very honest conversations. Um, but, you know, are the management passionate? Are they uh, excited about the opportunity? Are they commercially astute? Um, can they think outside the box? Because if you, if your business idea doesn't work exactly as you planned it, which normally is the case, <laughs> a really great management team will think their way around it. Yeah. And a mediocre one will just smack into a wall and wonder why their head hurts. You know. So, so for me, those are the sort of three main criteria. And I tend to invest in businesses in sectors I know and understand. So I'm pretty well into travel, media, and technology. Um, that's that's where I the core. I've got a couple of things outside of that, but most of it is what I can add most value to, and what I've got most experience in, and what I enjoy talking about. Yeah, love media, love travel. Yeah, love tech. So. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and again, that comes back to your passion, you know, having found what you enjoy and what you're good at and what you're genuinely interested in. And um, and I guess creating a life by design, which it strikes me you have through your career and sort of where you are today, you know, it's all about the choices, you, you know, you're in a position where you can cho choose what to do and not what not to do, which is great, you know. Um, but when it comes to sort of investing and, and businesses, do you start with the end in mind? Are you always, are you thinking about the exit or potential exit before you invest? Um, or does that, is that not um, an issue for you because you're prepared to sort of invest for longer term? It's just really because I think a lot of people, when they're looking to raise finance for their business, they, they're not necessarily putting themselves in the shoes of the, of the potential investor and what the investor is looking for. So I think sharing some of your thoughts on this is really helpful for people because anyone listening that's looking to raise finance to grow and scale, knowing this stuff is going to help them, right? <laughs> so, yeah, do you yeah. spend in mind, Roger, or, or not? Uh, always. Um, yeah. And I think it does two things. One is it um, really helps you to think about how an investor thinks. And you present your business differently when you start thinking about, because it starts to ask different questions. It doesn't ask questions about what product or service am I offering and how am I going to be successful and people will love it. But it starts asking questions about um, how do I create value? Equity value in a business. Yeah. Um, how, how big is the market? You know, if the market is tiny and I'm going to get a large share of it, nobody's going to want to buy it from me. So you start asking different questions when you think about value creation and exit. And, and deeper than just the, well, we'll sell it to trade or we'll sell it to private equity. Um, you have to go much deeper into what is it that's going to be special about this that somebody's going to want to buy it? Yeah. Um, and what kind of multiples would you get? And what would increase the multiple and all of those kinds of questions? So always have that end in mind. And, and as I'm chairing the businesses, you know, we're constantly looking at that moment and asking ourselves those questions rather than three years down the line, we start thinking about selling and then we think, oh, we haven't done this and we haven't done that or we should have done that differently. Mm. It informs your decision-making on the journey so that you're, you're maximizing your chances of a successful outcome when yeah. you get there. Yeah. Uh, or minimizing your chances of screwing it up. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, 100%, 100%. And, you know, I mean, I, I always advise people exactly the same, start with the end in mind. You know, and this holds good for, for business, you know, what do, what do you want for the business? But it also holds good for your life as well. 
you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about the final exit of death, but there is that there is partly that, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? How are you going to set things up? Do things need to be in trust for your kids? Or, you know, what, you know what I mean? So I think that principle of start with the end in mind, you know, the starting with the end in mind might be ultimately what kind of lifestyle do I want to create for, for, for myself, my family and in, in which what period of time, because I can work backwards from there. Because if you want a life like you've had of, of portfolio and investing and where you are now, well, you know, what you need to do in the meantime to allow you to get there will be quite different than if you said, no, I want to, you know, stay in a corporate life. And so I think it is really helpful to, to do that as a general principle, start with the end and think about what you're really looking to achieve. And you're right, the, the, the decisions you take, how you set things up will be very, very different depending on what that exit looks like. Um, Particularly when you've taken other people's money into the organisation, you then have a responsibility Yes. Um, to look after that for them. And that's, that's quite a responsibility. So not thinking about that stuff actually is doing a disservice to the money you brought in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you make a, just actually as you're talking there, Roger, I think about, you know, are you aligned, you know, with your investors, with your shareholders? Do you have aligned values? Do you have aligned goals? Because certainly what I see sometimes with smaller businesses that they focus too much on just raising the finance and the cash and not necessarily as much around the fit and the, the other perspectives around who you're getting in bed with um, and, and actually planning for the what if scenarios, you know, so that all of that is done up front and then everyone is, is on the same page for whatever might come um, as much as possible. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's a piece as well around making sure that you're aligned and, and you have the same, the same end goals. Uh, is that important as well, Roger, with the businesses that you're in? Hugely important. I mean, I, um, I, I talk a lot about alignment of the business itself. So the strategy, the, uh, the way the organization is set up, um, systems, policies, processes, and also the culture of the organization, its value. So if a business is aligned, then it's really going to get the most power out of what it's trying to achieve. Uh, same thing with investors and, and the board is, you know, if everyone's pulling in different directions, it's going to get ugly pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, always seek alignment. It's actually one of a role of the chair as well is to make sure people stay aligned because if everyone's going off in different directions, it's going to be really difficult to uh, to get to where you want to go. So hugely important. So, and I agree, just raising money and thinking it's just money that's coming with no strings attached is, is the wrong mindset totally. Yeah, yeah, no, great advice there. Fantastic. So, Roger, anyone like listening to this podcast or watching on YouTube will or looking at you sort of, you know, in terms of your professional position or go, bloody hell, it's been all right for Roger, hasn't it? He's done well. Um, but of course, not everything is rosy in the garden all of the time, is it? So could you share with us just some some moments where maybe things have been really challenging and, you know, you've had failure or rejection or things haven't gone your way and, and just sort of how you've managed to navigate through that bounce back? Because otherwise, I think sometimes we can present a version um, where people don't see all of the pain, the suffering, the heartache that goes along the way to the success ultimately. So do you want to, can we just touch on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first one that comes to mind, I remember when I joined British Airways um, about three months in um, and I'm general manager of sales and distribution. I was, with, I was working mainly in media at Virgin. So I didn't know very little about the airline industry and we had a, a sales conference. So it's about 300 people in the audience. And I have to do a presentation on distribution. And I stood there and I at Virgin, we didn't do anything like that. We didn't do PowerPoints and stand up in front of big audiences. We just chatted around a table. And so I did this thing thinking they all know more about this than I do. Um, as soon as I got down from the lectern, my boss came up and said, oh, thanks for doing that. You need to go on a presentation skills course. <laughs> and I... I literally thought then, and I realized that I just made a complete ass of myself on stage in front of all my worldwide colleagues, and I've only just got there. Um, and it was, I didn't know what I was talking about, but also my, I had no skills in present, presenting. Mm. So I, I must have, so I, I, I picked myself up and I, you know, I, I mean, I felt awful. And it was very hard then when you're in meetings, people are kind of looking at you and you, you think, I wonder if they just think I'm, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, 
So I went on a presentation skills course. They videoed me and um, I said, well, no, this is someone else because this person's is hopeless. <laughs> they said, no, that is you. We got the right take. Um, and I then vowed to turn that into a skill rather than have it as a weakness. And I think when you're going up through management and then getting into a more leadership position, you've got to learn all the time. And so I then started working with a guy who was a performance coach for people to do speaking. And I spent 10 years with the guy. Um, not, all, not all the time, but um, just getting to a point where if this was going to be an important part of my role, um, and the higher up you go, the more important it is in front of more and more people. If I have to get in front of thousands of people, which I ended up having to do at my various jobs, I don't look like a crumbling idiot when I do that. <laughs> um, and it got to a stage where I then got started to get asked to do it publicly. So I, I now do public speaking um, at conferences. I absolutely love it. Getting up on stage, no notes, walking up and down. I even walk through the audience and, do, and interact with them that way. Um, so it's gone from being an incredible weakness and a, and a massive slap in the face in my early days at BA where I thought life was over um, to picking yourself up and dusting yourself down and thinking, yeah, you know, speaking like that is not really a natural act. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a – when you get something like that happen, you, you know, you can either just crumble with it or, or get up and go, right, I'm going to take this head on. Um, and it was, you know, I remember the first time it was BA again where I had 360 degree feedback. And you get these reports and it hurts. You think, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not that person. <laughs> and everybody's saying it. And you, say, and you begin to think, well, maybe I am that person. <laughs> and again, you, you either, somebody said to me once, most people in corporate life or in life lead unexamined lives. They don't look at themselves. Mm. And as soon as you start opening your mind up to how am I as a human being, how am I interacting with other people, what are they seeing, what are they reading, then you begin to understand and be, be able to begin to adapt or learn or better yourself. or Because that, um, you know, I've got a sense of humour and, you know, I thought I was funny and apparently it was coming out really badly to all sorts of people in uh, you know, at work. And I had to learn how to control my humour. I get it to come through here before it comes out here. <laughs> because I was, people were, I was upsetting people or I didn't mean to, but it was, I just thought it was funny. Um, or it connected with something I did at school that was funny and they just came out and, and yeah. So lack of awareness of yourself is a massive hindrance to learning. And once you lift the lid on that, you never go back. Yeah, that's that's a great one, actually. I really love that. And, and also showing your vulnerability, isn't it? You know, it's actually saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not confident in this. I'm not so good at it. I'm holding a genuine mirror up and, and really asking yourself, you know, yeah, this feedback, uh, there's something in this. Yeah, mm. I need to pay attention to this. Because, I mean, the thing is with feedback, you can either take it on board and do something about it, or you can just poo-poo it, ignore it and say, no, actually it's everyone else's fault. And no, I'm, I'm wonderful. And, and, you know, we're all human beings. I think we're all perfectly imperfect. Um, and, you know, to, to actually have a desire to, to be a better version um, of you is, is a good thing to do. And yeah, but your ego can get in your way, in the way, can't it? In those situations, you know, cause you feel hurt, you feel vulnerable, you're in a certain position and, and very often it's our ego that's talking to us, not, not the really honest voice that, it, that you should have. Um, yeah, and blokes are better at ego than, than women. <laughs> so they, um, that tends to get in the way a lot. Um, and it's, but as soon as you, you, know, you start thinking about everybody else around you and how you interact with them and what's important to them and so on, you get this incredible sort of, um, it's like the blinkers coming off, but that then leads to more effective teams that lead to better performance. It leads to better career progression. So it, it is in itself a, a virtuous circle of, of, of a good thing because um, 
because you've opened your mind up to it and, and you, you just have a much better manager and leader when you do. And so, yeah, the only one to interact with people like me and, and, you know, ignore everybody else who thinks I'm daft is, you know, it's just not, not a, is a completely unexamined life and a lot less rewarding, I think. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's some massive, massive valuable lessons here in what you're saying, Roger. And, and you know, what I, what's really nice about this is that what you took as being a, you know, a dark moment and sort of a, a really low point is actually now a high point, you know, and I guess there's something around symmetry and balance here. You know, you can't have light without shade. And, and, and actually that's gone full circle and now you love it. And, you know, the, the confidence that you have when you speak now, I mean, it's probably like seeing two different people actually compared to where you were, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it's actually out of, it's a bit like, you know, you learn a lot from really bad leaders as much as you learn from good leaders. You learn a lot from, I mean, a lot more out of the mess ups that you have along the way. Um, if you are open-minded to it and take it in and think actually that, that was my fault. Mm, yeah, taking, taking responsibility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think also, you know, I mean, you've gone full circle, really, haven't you? Because you know, starting your career with with Richard Branson, where fa- you know failure is almost embraced and is seen as, you know, actually trying new stuff, accepting that everything's going to work out, but actually having that approach to failure is so much more positive than what you can find sometimes in those big corporate organizations where it's almost like, well, you know, you can't fail because that's just a negative, such a negative. And it's a very different, very different approach, isn't it? Um, so it is, to- I think there's um, a lot of corporates are saying, well, we need to embrace failure and it's good to give it a go. And everybody in the organization going, Oh God, no, <laughs> don't do it. You'll, you'll get fired when it goes wrong. Um, and so I think large corporates struggle with that. Mm. Um, at a time when the world is, in a, which I find incredibly exciting, where the world is getting disrupted everywhere, that your incumbent advantage as a large corporate is being eaten away. And you've got to think differently. You've got to um, innovate. You've got to disrupt yourself. You know, So large corporates are in a difficult place to try and struggle with. How do we change dramatically, mm. transform our business models, transform our, our offering? At a time when they're so in, in laden with this is the way we do it and the rules and, and all of that, it, it holds them back. Yeah, yeah. Evolution versus revolution, isn't it? I think to a certain degree, you know, it's much easier for, a, a, a you know, I suppose a legacy business with all the legacy systems and processes, you know, probably evolution is easier, but revolution is is much more difficult. Um, whereas in the startup businesses or, you know, the, the early phase businesses, you can try stuff and be a lot more out there with it, really. But with, um, you know, the, the world is is forcing revolution because of, mm. you know, data, AI, um, virtual reality, you name it, um, smartphone. I mean, it's just everywhere. It's, you know, business models are getting disrupted. So, yeah, it's it's... It's exciting that the um, the startups or the smaller businesses can really accelerate and do something quite fascinating. Yeah, um, in a disruptive world. Yeah, I agree, Roger. So, given your expertise and your your nous when it comes to investing, what are the top tips from Roger on um, on industry sectors, businesses that actually are you know in a good place to to sort of capitalize on disruption and and sort of the, you know the place in the world we are today what 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 are your top tips roger <laughs> um well i think there's there's an incredible opportunity to create new business models that have high recurring revenues um so i'm going to give you a simple one which is not a a disruption but you know i'm involved in the mobile phone industry and you know, customers pay their mobile phone bills every month, corporates and, and individuals. Um, but for the mobile companies, that's a massively high recurring revenue. And in the pandemic, um, people kept paying their mobile phone bills because they needed them more than ever. Um, and so thinking about how your income comes in and how do you create a business model where um, you've sold that to customers and they're, you know, they need it it's important to them and they're on, and you see these subscription e-models all, all over the place. Uh, and when times are tough or not, you know, uh, you have a bit of a downturn or whatever, you know, the subscription model system is, is very powerful. Um, I think thinking about 
we used to do as a Virgin a lot, think about the large incumbents and their business models and how do you disrupt that? How do you come out with something different? And there are so many tools and technologies available to organizations now to harness that sort of mindset. Um, I feel I find that deeply fascinating. And I have some wonderful conversations with the business I'm involved in. I do a bit of mentoring, so, so I, I mentor a few people. And just challenge them on their business model and how they thought about it and what are the opportunities out there and have you thought about this? Because you, you could do, do that in a different way. I find that incredibly rewarding, um, mm. just having stimulating conversations about what's possible here. Can you take yeah. this to a different place? Yeah, no, fantastic. That's great. And I just want to bring you back sort of a bit full circle, I suppose more of a personal question, really, because you spoke very, very fondly of your lovely wife, Lisa, of 35 years and your two daughters, Katie and Lucy, um, when we started talking. Um, you know, because behind every successful person, man or woman, there's there's a home life very often. There's a partner, there's family. How important has that been to you when you're out there doing these big jobs and sort of very much at the forefront? You know, how 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 has this having a supportive partner and, and wife and Lisa and your girls been to you being successful? Um, I think it's it's been incredibly important. Lisa has been amazing over the years. Um, because when you're running, you know, you're on your career ladder and you're running large corporate jobs, you're, you know, you're time poor and and you're running around like a nut and you can't be there all the time and i remember when i worked for virgin i would be there on a saturday evening for a dinner but i'd be <laughs> sometimes i'd fall asleep in the corner um of a, of a dinner party at home because i was just so exhausted the place was so exhausting and so you have you've compromised left right and center um i did have one thing which was i didn't take a job that was more than 30 minutes drive from home which I was lucky enough to manage so that I could get to a school event or that kind of thing. But mm. you, know, you travel a lot, so you'd miss stuff because you're away. Um, so Lisa holding that together, keeping my feet on the ground, and, um, and her parents actually, this sense of family and community, hugely important bedrock. And our girls grew up in that nurturing environment um and you know what i'm i love is they still like to be spend time with us um enjoy our company they've got their own uh, their own worlds now but they they like being with us like coming on holiday with us so you know that i treasure that probably more than anything um and spending time with family and friends as much as i can is is brilliant um covid has made that a bit of a memory for the last couple of years, but uh, we're all getting back back together now, which is lovely. Yeah, fantastic. No, that's so important. I think it's 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 critical, isn't it? We recognise those important people in our lives because uh, sometimes, certainly, I think if you're quite a, an outgoing, out there sort of person, um, you can end up being all, all about the Roger show. Well, actually, it's not the Roger show, is it? It's the Roger, Lisa, Katie and Lucy show in reality. Um, and, and all the other people in your life that are important too. So it's a mm. big I think. Um, so Roger, I could chat to you for hours, but very conscious of your time and how busy you are. Mm. So when you look back over your illustrious career, can you think of the best piece of advice you've ever been given or a really good piece of advice that sort of stayed with you for many years? Um, I've got two. Oh, great. Go for it. And one's from my mum and one's from my dad. There we go. Um, my mum said um, when I was sort of at school and you know embarking on a career, she would always say, just aim for the moon because you might just get there. And that stayed with me ever since. And in my career, I've kind of, you, you get those moments where you think, maybe I shouldn't go for that job. It's a bit too much for me. I'm not sure I'm ready for it. Mum mm. in the back of my head will be go, aim for the moon. Um, and if you set your sights high, um, and I do this when I'm mentoring people is, you know, why, why are your sights like that? Why aren't they like that? You know, why are you aiming only to do that? Um, so aim for the moon was one for my mum, And the other for my dad was when I went to university, he said, he drove me up. Um, we were chatting on the way and I'm the, I was the first member of our family ever to go to university. So nobody knew what I was in for. 
But he said something very wise on the way up. He said, uh, we're just pleased you're there, but make sure you maintain a balance. And I thought balance was really interesting. And um, so you know, don't overdo it on one thing or another. Keep a balance. And if you think about life and whether you're thinking about, um, well, work-life balance is a really tricky one. Um, you know, you read about people who are apparently amazing at all of it and you think, well, that's just not possible. Um, you, you can't sleep at all. But, um, but you know, balance in your range of friends, balance in, in um, uh, your sport you enjoy or you know, friends and family you enjoy with, balancing alcohol <laughs> versus, yeah. you know, you think all these things, well, you know, you, you've got to keep a balance, a balance. And I thought that, you know, that, and so I had lots and lots of advice in my career, but those two from mum and dad kind of really just stuck with me. Yeah, I love both of them. Fantastic. And clearly they're principles that you've just continued to use throughout your whole, your whole life. So, yeah, fantastic from your mum and dad. Love that. Yeah. And Roger, when you look back, can you think of any sort of advice that you took which didn't work out so well and you wish you hadn't? <laughs> or advice that maybe you had that actually you ignored and you were very glad that you did ignore it? Mm. Yeah, um, just on advice, I think it's kind of interesting. The um, I've always triangulated. Um, and so somebody gives you a piece of advice and then you kind of look for a second opinion. I think you minimize making a bad decision by just thinking rather than just saying, well, you must know what you're talking about. Let me tell you. So, so I kind of check it out. But I do remember my boss at the Pru, uh, the Prudential, um, very early on said, you know, I was in charge of 7,000 people, mainly salespeople. Um, and he said, um, whatever you do, don't trust the staff. Wow. And I remember walking away from that meeting thinking, blimey, what, what is it about what's happened to you career-wise that has meant that you just don't trust the people underneath you? And I was diametrically the opposite. I thought at that moment, we are so misaligned on how I want to run the business and how you're going to watch me run it and comment, this, this may not last very long. Um, because I'm completely the opposite. I'm, I'm just, I've always had this philosophy is if you trust people to do amazing things, they'll never let you down. Um, and yeah, you, you know, people are all ages and I'm, I'm, I find it wonderful today. You, you get a lot of the young, you know, one of the things I love about investing malarkey is I meet a lot of young people and it kind of keeps me young, but you know, they're, they're amazing. They, um, they're highly intelligent. They really thought things through. They think about things that we didn't think about. Um, you know, the planet and other things when we were growing, you know, they, they really care about things more broadly than just work and career and, and so on. And I, I find their perspective on the world um, really informative and, and thought provoking. Um, and so, yeah, so this idea that you should, make sure everybody is watched and, and you don't trust them it is, is an anathema to me. Um, so that's a piece of advice I didn't take and did exactly the opposite, yeah. which is why I only lasted two years there. And then, well, yeah, that's, well, I mean, that, that was probably the single most um, red flag that you probably could have had and actually an indicator that this was not the environment, the company, the organization for you. And um, yeah, no, yeah. I think there's a big point around what you look for, you find as well, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's that's a core, a core uh, point there for you, Roger. So my last question, well, actually, no, but one before last, actually, where can people find you, Roger? Because anyone wants to connect with you, maybe they've got an interest in business opportunity, they want to maybe get some advice from you or whatever it might be. Um, where can people find you? Um, well, I'm not really sort of out there in that way. Um, I'm, I'm just useless at this. I've, um, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I think I, about 10 years ago, registered rogerflynn.co.uk, but I've never done anything with it. It's just sitting there on the shelf. So, um, yeah, so I think it's um, uh, just connect on LinkedIn is probably the easiest thing um, and, uh, and go from there. Perfect. That's great. No, absolutely. So 
Very good, Roger. So my last question, this podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Um, so I'm really interested to hear what does that mean for you? Uh, I think there's two things that come to mind. Um, one is uh, people I meet and interact with who've got a new idea or an exciting vision for the business they're in and they, they've got, the guts to go for it, and then the ability to make it happen. Mm. Because I admire that more than anything. Just spending some of my time helping, guiding, mentoring people that, you know, literally are being brave, bold, and brilliant. I absolutely admire those people. Um, and the other one, which has really come to the fore in the last couple of years, the nurses and doctors. Um, and I've witnessed, not firsthand, I've had COVID, but I just felt sorry for myself on the, on the set of your home. But um, just watching what they've gone through and how deep they've dug, uh, how much personal sacrifice there's been to help us all get through this thing, um, I just think it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. That's great. Oh, really, Roger, it's been fabulous speaking to you, honestly. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, all the highs, the lows, the pieces of advice you've given. We've been educated and inspired all in one. So massive thank you, Roger. And um, yeah, it's been great to see you. And you. Thanks so much. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.